Father, we confess we are a needy people. Apart from your grace, we have no hope of salvation. Please remind us through the preaching of your word this morning that you have offered us everything we need for life and godliness. Apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we have no hope of living a life that is pleasing to you. Please remind us of our utter inability to please you without faith, and please remind us that with the Spirit living in us, we can live a life that is pleasing to you, a life of faith. Apart from the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, my preaching is powerless. I would be just a clanging symbol without your help, so... Please speak powerfully through me this morning. Remind us of your greatness, your mercy, and your generosity toward us through your word. Lord, we celebrate your mercy and your justice this morning in light of this week's announcement of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the verdict of the Dobbs case. The scriptures proclaim that when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers, so we pray that you would protect the pregnancy resource centers around the country and their workers as they seek to uphold righteousness and provide care for the vulnerable. Please keep them from destruction and sustain them through the threat of attack and harm. We praise you, Lord, for you are the one who executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. We pray that thousands upon thousands of helpless babies will be saved as states now seek to uphold justice. We pray for the states who will resist the cause of justice and will further seek to oppress the needy and destroy the unborn. We beg you, Lord, turn their hearts to repent. We pray that you would keep us, your people, from political boasting and give us the grace to speak a kind gospel word to our neighbors who may be hurting, angry, or afraid in this moment. Father, we ask that you would move powerfully in the worship gathering at Oak Street Baptist Church in Graham this morning as our brother Sammy leads them in worship. Make much of your great name in their midst. We also ask that you grant our pastor and his family much-needed rest and renewal on their vacation this week. Please return him to us renewed, encouraged, and energized to continue this gospel work in our city. Please come now and bless the public reading of your word. Attend this sermon with your Holy Spirit power and transform us by your grace, we pray. Amen. Are you in Galatians 3 yet? Oh, good. I got a vert. Hey, look, pastor's away. We can respond. It's all good. Everything's fine. All right, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thank you for this good news, Lord. Help me, Holy Ghost. I grew up as a PK, that is a pastor's kid. PKs, as we are affectionately and sometimes not so affectionately referred to, uh, live life in a fishbowl. It always feels like people are watching you, scrutinizing your every move. At this point, I will beg you to show extra grace to the five PKs we have as of right now running around Indian Creek. Pastor Jake and Mandy's four plus my one. I was a troublemaker and a class clown, so I received lots of attention from church folks. But one story has stuck with me for about 25 years now and has profoundly impacted my life. One night, my mom attended a ladies' prayer meeting at the church. Obviously, I was not in attendance, but my name came up, not in gossip, but in prayer. I will always be thankful for a wheelchair-bound widow named Hazel Hill, who was perhaps our church's most powerful prayer warrior. That night, when I was eight years old or so, she began to pray for me. In her prayer, she prophesied Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, over my life. That's part of the text that Mark read for us earlier. She proclaimed that I, Calvary Assembly of God's chief troublemaker, would grow up to be a righteous man, a blessed man who trusts in the Lord. She announced by faith that even in hard times, in seasons of drought, my leaves would remain green because I would be like a tree planted by the water of God's word. Over the years, my obedience has been spotty at best. I've not always made the right choices. I've certainly struggled with sin. There have been many times when I did not live up to that prophecy, but the Lord kept me for himself by his grace. There have been so many days when I doubted that I could be a righteous, firmly planted man. But I've held on to that promise by faith, and the Lord has sustained me. If you know my story, you've heard about seasons of drought in mine and Carmen's lives, and you know the Lord has brought us through them. We've put our trust in the Lord, and he has come through time and time again. I have not perfectly kept the Lord's commands, but he has faithfully kept his word. 
My confidence is not in my own flesh, but in God's promises. And so I am blessed. Not because I'm faithful, but because he's faithful. This morning in our text, we're going to see two simple but profound truths. First, we'll see a positive promise that those who live by faith are blessed. And then second, we'll see a negative warning that those who live by the works of the law are cursed. Those who live by faith are blessed. Those who live by works of the law are cursed. So we'll divide this text then, uh, verses 1 through 9 for our first section and verses 10 through 14 in our second section. We read right away. You, can, you, you probably sense the, the change in tone in the text. He goes from a declaration of God um, justifying him uh, before himself through Christ. That's all really good news. And then he turns his attention, Paul does, on the Galatian church with an exclamation, Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Paul admonishes the Galatians for their foolishness. If you need a refresher course, I'm happy to provide that for you. Uh, The circumcision party had crept in and begun to poison the faith of the Galatian believers. You see in the early part of chapter 2 that they tried to pressure Titus into getting circumcised. He refused. Then they successfully pressured Peter, the apostle, to show favoritism and not even eat with the Gentiles. They were successfully convincing the Galatians to pursue a righteousness that comes by works instead of the one that had already been granted to them by faith. They were trying to drag free men back into slavery to the law. And Paul equates their deception here with demonic activity. Say, how'd you get there, Andrew? Well, that word bewitched. Who has bewitched you? Um, That word bewitched implies, according to one commentator, that they had become objects of a sinister, supernatural ploy. Something wicked was going on in the churches in Galatia. He also includes that who as a singular. Who is it that has bewitched you? That's a singular who. That suggests to us that Satan himself is behind the work of the circumcision party. Satan himself has crept in through the work of false teachers to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, to turn them from freedom by the Spirit back to slavery to the law. It's a bad deal. uh, Satan himself is behind this work, And the scriptures, I think, would argue that all false gospels come from the father of lies, the author of confusion. God is not a God of confusion, the scriptures tell us, but of peace and order. And these false gospels, these confusing gospels, they're authored by Satan himself. And so Paul is going to confront the Galatians in our text, which we've already read. And he's going to offer an argument for the doctrine of justification by faith. I would at this point pause and, and urge you, if you're, if you're uh, hanging out with us and you weren't here last week, make a note to go back and listen to the sermon last week. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, and our website. Uh, and in Church Center, you can get a link to it from there. I mean, we have it everywhere, okay? 
uh, and Pastor Jake did a great job of describing to us how we are justified. That is not made right, but declared right before a thrice holy God through the blood of Christ and Christ alone, not by our own efforts. So Paul is confronting this idea that we can justify ourselves by our own obedience. And he's turning this argument straight to the Galatian church. And he argues first in the first five verses from their own experience. And then he argues from the scripture. I know usually we we might try to invert that to to argue from the scripture first. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I do want you to notice that Paul, uh, uh, he appeals to their experience first in verses one through five. The Galatians were saved after hearing Paul's powerful message. He says this, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, thinking about the region where the Galatian churches were and the time that this letter was likely written, probably most of the people in the audience weren't eyewitnesses to the death of Christ, the crucifixion. Rather, Paul is referencing how vividly he proclaimed the message that Jesus had been crucified on their behalf and how as hearers they heard it so powerfully and God moved in their midst so profoundly that it impacted their lives and it changed everything. And he's saying, how can you forget this? I mean, don't you remember how powerful your conversion experience was? Don't you remember how God changed your life in an instant? There's an Arabian proverb that says the best speakers can turn ears into eyes. And I'm reminded when I read things like that of uh, George Whitfield, the Puritan preacher uh, who was such an incredible orator that people would often respond to his message as though his illustrations were real life. There's one story that I really like where he's preaching and there's a uh, British dignitary named Lord Chesterfield. Lord Chesterfield is in the audience and George Whitfield is proclaiming the gospel and he starts talking about the sinner. And the sinner who doesn't know Christ is like a blind man who's walking and he's tapping the ground in front of him with a pole and he's walking on the edge of a cliff and he has a little dog on a leash and and at one point he taps the edge of the cliff and the, his stick falls off into the dark unknown. And these hearers are so enraptured with this message that Lord Chesterfield becomes convinced that this man is going to fall to his death. And he says, good God, he's gone in the middle of the sermon. I wish I was that good of a preacher where you're hearing me and you're like, you, you are seeing what is unfolding before your very eyes. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here. God worked through the vivid proclamation of the gospel. How could they now doubt what they had heard? Hey, don't discount your experience. Should you trust it wholesale? Maybe not. Test every spirit by what? The word. But hey, don't doubt your experience. Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember how your life was transformed in a moment? It's easy to forget these things sometimes, but Think back on your own testimony and let it bear witness to the new birth that has already taken place inside of you. Paul has a central question here, verse 2. I know he has like six rapid-fire questions, but the main one is in verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's arguing here by a series of questions that the Galatian church, the obvious answer to these rhetorical questions is, Uh, by the Spirit. 
by hearing with faith. You receive the Spirit with faith. When do we see, receive the Spirit? Well, it seems to me the Bible is very clear that we receive the Spirit at conversion. I'll try to prove that to you in just a moment. He continues to argue in verse 4, you endured suffering by faith. I mean, was it all for nothing? You're going to go back to works now? You're going to try to earn the spirit that God's already given you? Why did you even suffer? If you're not even a Christian yet, and you have to become a Jew to be a Christian, why did you even experience the suffering that you've gone through? He argues in verse 5, you've witnessed the power of God by faith. Why are you doubting now? Why are you turning back from the good news that was proclaimed to you, that you received? How can you deny the work of the Spirit in your own life? It's not by works of the law. It's by hearing with faith. All this, the Spirit came by hearing with faith, not by your own slavish obedience to the law. The Scriptures are very clear that assurance of your salvation comes primarily from where? From whom? I'll help you. The Holy Spirit. Assurance of your salvation comes primarily from the Holy Spirit. Let me read a few verses to back this point up. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 also says he gives us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I like this one the best. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hey, is that your testimony? Have you heard the good news of the gospel? Did you respond to it? Did God change your life or did he not? Did he give you the spirit or did he not? That's the mark of whether you are saved. Do you doubt your own salvation? Hey, listen, from time to time, many of us do. But what do you do when those moments come when you doubt your own salvation? I would give you two pieces of advice based on this text. Number one, remember your testimony. Remember where you were when you heard the good news preached and how God used it to change your life. And number two, look for evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you and trust it. Look for evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you and trust it. Are you different than you were the night before you came to faith in Christ? Trust that. Has God done mighty works among you? Trust that. Remember that. Hang on to these things. Paul is incredulous here. He's, he's telling them, you've seen the Spirit at work in you, and now you want to trust in your flesh? Why? Why would you do that? Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? The obvious answer is, of course not. 
Why are you doing this? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I'll confess that when I was young, um, some of you say you're still young, when I was little, all right, and none of us can argue, I'm not little (laughs) anymore. Uh, When I was a kid, that's better, uh, I really did believe that I was saved by grace through the cross, the resurrection, the empty tomb, but that really it was up to me to kind of maintain my status of salvation. Now, I had a wonderful pastor. He was also my dad, who was a wonderful dad. He never preached anything like that, but I had somehow become convinced that it was by grace I'd been saved, but it was by faith that I would stay saved. Not faith, obedience, that I would stay saved. That's why every night, for probably a decade, I asked Jesus to come into my heart before I went to sleep. I mean, I suffered from spiritual anxiety. Has anybody else ever been there with me? It's because I believe that God started the salvation process by his grace, but it was up to me to bring it to the finish line. And Paul was arguing, this is a ridiculous way to live and to think. I'll continue my story, and and after this, I'll I'll try not to use personal examples anymore. But it it was until I got to college that this really was addressed in my life. And I was listening to this preacher. Uh, for context, I used to live alone in my dorm room because I was an RA <clears throat> and I was a resident assistant. So I had, um, I had a very minor and highly arbitrary level of authority <laughs> over the people on my hall uh, being their peer and all. But I was a resident assistant, which means I got to live by myself, my own room, my own bathroom. It was pretty good, right? And I got to listen to sermons a lot. I was listening to a ton of sermons. And there was this, this one preacher, and I had really gotten into his, his preaching. And I'll, I'll tell you who he was. It's uh, Matt Chandler, who's just an hour and a half down the road. And he was preaching through the Gospel of Luke. Man, this is one of those moments. See, I grew up charismatic. So when these, like, aha moments hit, you remember them. <laughs> uh, I was listening to him preach, and he was given the Gospel, like, again. And I remember thinking, Actually, I said it. I said it out loud. I said, okay, all right, I get it. The gospel, Jesus died. Now, let's move on. I kid you not, this is the truth. He said on this recording that was from a couple years before, now some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I get it. Let's move on from the gospel. And here I stand dead to rights. Oh, he's talking to me. And he said, that just proves you don't get it. We don't graduate on from the gospel. We grow deeper into the gospel. That was one of those moments where the Spirit changed my life, changed my heart, changed my thinking. Suddenly I began to understand that it's the Spirit doing this work all along. And I made a declaration sometime that semester, that if I was going to err, I would err on the side of giving God too much credit rather than not enough, and I don't even really think that's possible. God used gospel preaching to deliver me from the snare of works-based righteousness, and here's the message that I heard, and I think you need to hear too. The gospel is not only for our justification that is being declared right before God. The gospel is for our sanctification, 
that is continually being made right before God. For Paul, the argument is obvious. You received the Spirit by faith. You grow in the Spirit by faith, not by works. Remember your testimony. Remember how the Spirit worked within you. Now he moves on in verse 6. He pivots from appealing to their personal experience, which is valid. Now he's going to appeal to the scriptures really all the way until the end of our text and much beyond that. Pastor Jake will pick up the hard stuff next week. Um, But he's going to continue that argument from scripture for a while. We're going to go from 6 to 14. But here in verses 6 through 9, he uses Abraham as the example of living by faith. He's calling Abraham as his witness, which is a genius move. If you think about it, it's a genius move by Paul because these Judaizers or the circumcision party, they're basically arguing, you need to be like Abraham and become a Jew so that you can be justified before God. And Paul's going to argue, that's not even how it worked for Abraham. It's a pretty smart move, I'll be honest. Abraham is the grandfather of the Jewish faith, highly esteemed by the Judaizers. He was the first to obey God's command to be circumcised, and their argument is to be justified before God, become a Jew. But Abraham himself destroys their argument. How? Why? I'll give it to you simply. God counted Abraham righteous while he was still a pagan. And he'll prove it. Abraham did nothing to earn his right standing before God. So Paul here in verse 6 quotes Genesis 15, 6. I'm going to turn there. You're welcome to if you'd like. But in Genesis 15, we have this incredible story of God reiterating his covenant with Abraham. The argument is, how did Abraham earn righteousness? Well, he didn't. I'll prove it to you in this text. Here's the verse that he quotes. It's verse 6. And he, being Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what did he believe? Let's go backwards a bit. Verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham's, Abram sorry, said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now why would that be hard for Abraham to believe or Abram to believe? Because he was super duper old. And so was his wife. And it was physically impossible for this to actually happen. But look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. God goes on to make a covenant with Abraham. Uh, You can read through that the the rest of chapter 15. But what's so interesting to me about this covenant is who made the covenant? 
in, in that day in the ancient Near East, you would make a covenant by dividing a sacrifice in half. And then both parties, hear me, both parties would walk between the pieces of the sacrifice to, to signify they were both making a covenant with each other. But in Genesis 15, what's so wild to me is that God caused Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And then God himself passed through the articles of sacrifice. Abram was sleeping. God made the covenant with Abraham. Abram. Abram did nothing. That's really, really important. God's covenant was based on his grace alone, not Abraham's effort. Abram was simply justified by grace. Paul continues his argument with another quotation about Abraham. He quotes Genesis 12, 3 next. We don't need to turn there. Here's what he says. <clears throat> the scripture in verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, that's cool, to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God would bless all the nations through Israel, or, sorry, Abraham's line. And Abram believed God's promise, went where he was directed, and began to obey after he believed the word God promised to him. Are you guys still with me? The Old Testament preached the gospel to the Gentiles from the very beginning. And that's really, really good news for you and for me because I have news for you. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. And God made a promise from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture that he would make us righteous before him by his grace alone. We receive this promise the same way that Abram received the promise. We believe it. We receive this promise by faith alone in Christ alone. And what's more, what's so interesting about Paul using this argument here is that Abram believed God in Genesis 12. Abram believed God in Genesis 15, and God made a covenant with him. Abram didn't even go on to be circumcised until Genesis 17. And so the Judaizers are saying, you have to be circumcised to be part of God's people. But Abraham was included in God's people before he was even circumcised. So their argument doesn't even make good logical sense. Abraham's faith was the crucial point, not his obedience. His faith. And Paul argues, all who have the same faith as Abraham are justified. All who have this faith experience the blessing of belonging to God's people. So let me ask you this question. You have a book full of God's promises in your lap, probably, or in your hand right now. Do you believe them? Do you believe them? Well, then you can be added to the family and experience the blessings. How can we be blessed? Uh, my sermon title, this is not all introduction, but my sermon title uh, today is How to Be Blessed in 10 Easy Steps. It's really sarcastic. It's tongue-in-cheek. There's only one step to be blessed, and it's trust in God through faith. Last week, Pastor Jake uh, part of his application in his sermon was this sentence. Even good people <clears throat> must abandon their goodness and trust in Christ alone. That's still true. 
even good people, must abandon their own goodness and trust in Christ alone. How can you be blessed? Put your hope in a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. Paul says we obtain these promises. We are given the Spirit by faith. What is faith? Faith is not a wish. You don't have faith that the Cowboys are going to make the playoffs, and you shouldn't. It's not a wish. You don't know what's going to happen. Every player could get injured and they could go 0-16. That's not faith. That's hope. That's a wish. But you have a scripture, a Bible full of promises of God, and guess what? The ending is already written. We hold on to that by faith. It's not a wish. It's a confident hope. I know what God says, and I believe it will happen. To use an analogy from poker, push all your chips into the middle of the table to trust in Jesus. That's faith. In verse 10, Paul is going to make a transition. He, he transitions from his positive argument. We just did that. That is, those who live by faith are blessed. And he's going to transition to a negative warning in verses 10 through 14. That is, those who live by the works of the law are cursed. He's going to continue proving his point by appealing to Old Testament scripture. Continues his defense of justification by faith through the Old Testament. He's already called on Abraham as a witness. Now he's going to call on the law, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's going to call on the prophets, Habakkuk, to make his case. He's going to use the whole Old Testament to prove his point that we are justified by faith alone. He already proved Abraham was justified by faith alone, and we are too. Now he goes on to show that those who trust in the law curse themselves. Remember, the Judaizers were trying to drag the Galatians from a state of blessing, already belonging to God's people, already having the Spirit by hearing with faith. They want to drag them back into a slavish obedience. Uh, that is a statement, uh, or, uh, sorry, a state of cursing. They want to take them from a state of blessing to a state of cursing. Galatian, the Galatian believers already belong to God's people, and they already experience his blessing by faith. And Paul's going to argue here. The scriptures are crystal clear on this issue. Reliance on obedience to the law does not save. It wasn't obedience that saved Abraham, and obedience won't save them either. Here we go. In verses 10 through 12, Paul gives three Old Testament warnings for the self-righteous. Three Old Testament warnings for the self-righteous. First, in verse 10, he argues that all who rely on the works of the law are cursed. All who rely on the works of the law are cursed. I had a question for you. Is it hot in here to y'all? I feel like I'm losing a few of you to drowsiness. Um, Jamie, there's a key right there. If you want to turn the air down, you're, it's your call. We trust Jamie with this sacred responsibility today. All who rely on the works of the law are cursed. Paul is going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. I'm going to go ahead and turn there. You're welcome to. Um, this scene that he's quoting from is a very interesting scene. I think it's very entertaining to read. Here's what he quotes. He quotes, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But here's the scene in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Paul, or no, sorry, not Paul, Moses is instituting a covenant ceremony. When they get to the promised land, here's what he wants them to do. He's going to divide six tribes near this one mountain and six tribes near this other mountain. They're going to rehearse the law from the Levites, and then they're going to shout to one another statements of blessing from one side of the valley to the other and statements of cursing from the other side of the valley to the other. You remember going to college football games, maybe? When I was in school, my school's colors were black and gold. And from across the stadium, one side would yell, black! And then the other side of the stadium would yell, gold! It's something similar to that going on in this text. And, you know, Pastor Jake's not here, so I want us to maybe remember this sermon. So here's, here's what we're going to do. You guys are six tribes, all right, of Israel from this aisle over. That's six tribes, all right? There's your mountain over there. You are six tribes. Your mountain is over there. Now, I want us to pretend that we're the Israelites. You have got to participate or this will not go well, okay? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the one statement of blessing and the one statement of cursing. Those are the sermon points. Those who live by faith are blessed. Which side wants to be the blessing side? Oh, they beat you to it. Okay, you're the blessing side, all right? We're going to put it up on the screen. Unless, here we go. Ready? You're going to shout this together, and then you're going to respond with amen. Ready? Those who... Stop, stop, no, stop, stop, stop. Face them. Don't recite it. Shout, declare it. Ready? Those who live... Hey, that's good. That's like youth camp level stuff. All right. Next, the curse. Those who live... Hey, good job. Give yourselves a hand. You did great. I do want you to notice something in that text, though. So the Levites were reading the law. They were reminding the people that if you live according to God's law, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you don't obey, you will be cursed. But notice at the beginning of Deuteronomy 27... What they quote is the encapsulation, the summary statement. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. But earlier in the text, in verse 9, here's what God's word says. Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command to you today. They obey because they already are the people of God. And so do we. We obey God's law, yes. It's just not how we're saved. We obey God's word because we already are saved. We already belong to the people of God. It was obvious from the start that these people, you know the story, we're not going to perfectly obey the law. None of us do. We're all cursed. 
We need blood to atone for our sins. That was built into the law itself. They weren't going to obey the law perfectly. That's why they had sacrifices. And now our perfect sacrifice has come, so we no longer need to make the sacrifices. But how can we apprehend the forgiveness that we must have from God? How can, we, how can our sins be atoned for? The perfect sacrifice. Are you sticking with me? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's coming later. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the sinless Messiah to come. Maybe they didn't know his name. Maybe they weren't sure about how the entire story was going to play out. But they were saved by faith that someone would come and perfectly fulfill the law's commands on their behalf, and he would make them righteous. If you doubt, you can read the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, and I think you'll come to that conclusion. Here's what I mean to say to you. Your obedience cannot save you. Stop trusting yourself. I know myself well enough to know I can't trust the works of my flesh. And here's why we shouldn't trust ourselves. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All of us stand cursed before God unless someone upholds the law on our behalf. Obedience follows belonging, not the reverse. Abraham obeyed because he was part of the people of God. Israel obeyed to the degree that they did because they were part of the people of God. And we obey because we are part of the people of God and we have the spirit within us. So that's argument number one. Warning number one, all who rely on the works of the law are cursed. Here's warning number two. No one can be justified by the law. They never could. Verse 11, he says it right there. It is evident no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, for the righteous shall live by faith. God never intended his people to find life through the law. Those who are justified will live by faith. I want to anchor in on that live by portion here. Tim Keller says it this way, to live by something means to rely on it for our happiness and fulfillment. Whatever we live by is the bottom line of our lives. What gives us meaning, confidence, and definition. So here's my question. What do you live by? If you live by your own goodness, repent before it's too late. Because it's not good enough. It'll never get you there. You're probably thinking, yeah, we know this. But I talk to people all the time who don't know the Lord, even some who claim to know the Lord, and their hope is that they're good enough for God to let them in. And I'm telling you, only one man has ever been good enough for God to let him in. You'll never get there by your own obedience. You have to trust in an obedience that comes from outside of yourself. The scriptures proclaimed justification by faith all along. Put your confidence in Christ's righteousness, not your own. No one can be justified by the law. His third warning, life according to the law is incompatible with a life of faith. Verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, it's the live by thing. Obedience is the result of faith. 
not its cause. Here he's quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5. And I would just point out the same simple truth that I pointed out in Deuteronomy 27. In in Leviticus 18, verse 4, he says, I am the Lord your God. And then he says, therefore, you shall obey. Israel didn't perfectly obey the law. We don't perfectly obey the law. We can't find life in the law. It will only bring a curse. But Jesus upheld the law. Timothy George explains it this way. Paul's citation of Leviticus 18, both in Romans 10 and Galatians 3, is a veiled reference to Christ himself. Paul was pointing to the one person in human history who has indeed obeyed the law completely and fulfilled it perfectly, qualifying thereby to bear the curse of the law for others. In other words, what does he say? The one who does them shall live by them. In other words, Jesus is the one who does them. Only Jesus is the one who does them. It comes down to this. Where do you place your hope? In whom do you place your hope? What are you going to live by? You're going to live by faith and the promises of God that there was one who satisfied the law's demand and he offers you his righteousness in exchange for your sin? Or are you going to live by your own efforts to appease a holy God? To go back to living by the law is to abandon the life of faith. Obedience is the result of faith, not the cause of faith. So if all this is true, if Paul is right and we can't earn our good standing before God, where do we find our hope? How can we escape the curse and experience God's blessing? Praise the Lord, he gives us the answer. It's right here in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here he goes back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23. Everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. Now, in the Old Testament, typically those who'd be executed would not be executed by crucifixion. They'd be executed by stoning. And to illustrate to all the people gathered that a divine curse had rested on this person who was executed for his disobedience to the law. He was hung up on a tree, but only until sundown, because if they left it up overnight, it would pollute the entire land. They would be unclean. Hanging a body on a tree was a sign of divine rejection. And here, Paul proclaims some really, really good news. Every one of us deserves to be executed according to the law, but Jesus experienced the curse of divine rejection for us. Jesus was the only righteous one according to the law, and Jesus redeemed us from the curse by dying on our behalf. Hear me. Jesus absorbs our curse and frees us from slavery to sin according to the law. Is that not good news? You don't seem nearly as excited as I'd like for you to be. Jesus took your curse. You were headed to an eternal death, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So do you believe it? How do you receive the Spirit? Believe God's promises. How are you included in God's people? Believe God's promises. 
How can you walk in obedience? Believe God's promises. Trust in the Spirit. Paul tightly summarizes his argument in verse 14. Let's read it together. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I'll read for you um, a quote from David Platt. He just summarized this really well. As one from Abraham's line, Jesus completes the promise to Abraham. Jesus is the seed to which the promise pointed. Christ perfectly lived the life of faith described in Scripture, and he died that the blessing of God would be made known to all nations. Through trusting in Christ, we become children of Abraham, the people of God. And I would add, according to verse 14, we also receive the Spirit, the chief blessing available to the people of God. So let me ask you, do you want to be blessed? One person wants to be blessed. Hey, I'll keep preaching to the one person. Do you want to be blessed? There is no easy 10-step method for earning God's favor and experiencing his blessing. If you want to belong to God's family, to experience God's blessing, and to receive God's spirit, there's only one step for you to take. Trust in Christ. It really is that simple. Jesus lived the life you could not live. Jesus died the death you deserve. And he offers you what Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All he requires is that you lay down your stubborn self-reliance, quit your arrogant attempts at self-righteousness, and receive his righteousness by faith. The scriptures are clear from Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. So trust him today. Place your faith in Christ alone and live. Let's pray. God, you have been so gracious to us. You knew from the beginning that we could never obey to the point where we could earn right standing before you. And so you provided a sacrifice on our behalf. Even in the Old Testament, you provided sacrifices for God's people to be uh, atoned, to be made right before you. And for us, we live on this side of the cross. And so we get the once for all sacrifice to put our faith in Christ alone. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to abandon our efforts at self-righteousness, to abandon our efforts at making ourselves good enough. God, help us instead to see that those who live by faith, those who receive the gospel promises, are part of the people of God, experience the blessing of God, and receive the spirit of God. So I pray you would bless every person in this room to that degree. We ask these things in your name. Amen.